Empire podcast this week, we say, oh, Tim Blake Nelson, where art thou? As one of the Coen brothers' go-to men comes in to talk about the ballad of Buster Scruggs. Plus, after seeing Chris Pine on a bike and in a lift, we come face to face with the man himself and director David McKenzie as they talk Outlaw King. All that and more on the movie podcast that went to his very first improv class this week and is ready to and yes the hell out of this thing, starting from now. Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, and welcome to the Empire Podcast. This week, I'm joined by two colleagues of such lethal cunning. We have our geek queen, our supernatural... This improv is really tricky. Hang on. <laughs> this... Um, this... Oh! This supernatural shenaniganer. No. Improv's so hard. Improv is terrible. Don't do improv. Improv is so hard. It's so tricky. Anyway, hello. Write the hard. words. Don't write, write the words. No. Improv. My, well, Mike Lee, he improvs, doesn't he? No. He extemporizes. Oh, that's just, that's play, let's play around with the text, guys. No, he does that in rehearsal and then oh. he writes a text oh, and that's it. what he performs. I've got it all him, wrong. His oh, no. Oh, this has gone wrong. Helen O'Hara's here anyway. Oh, yay! yay. Uh, and we also have, I mean, he's, he's, I mean, look at him. He's young. Mm. He's virile. Mm hmm. He's. I'm saying that like I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Please, can I just confirm that nobody in this room knows that about me? Yeah. No, no, absolutely not. Ben Travis is here. Hello. It's good to be here. How how are you? Um, generally good. Good. So I'm going to need a scenario no. and a location. <laughs> no, we're not doing this. I cannot stress to you enough <laughs> how much we're not doing this. Right. See, you're what you're doing right there mm-hmm. is not and yesing. You're no butting. Yes. I, I've noticed this about you, Helen. I think... I have no but. You know, you... <laughs> <laughs> See, now you're and-yesing. <laughs> this is good. See, you're going with a no-body, but you're turning it into an and-yesing, which is an and-yesing-no-body situation going on here. This is amazing. I'm, I'm going to need a flowchart This is just from sort. one class. Wow. And I mastered it. At the end, they came up to me and said, please leave. <laughs> which I think means... You've mastered it. Yep. We cannot teach you anymore. <laughs> Did you use that to springboard into a scene where you're like, actually, I would prefer to stay. And what would you like <laughs> me to do in this next session? Yeah. And then I and yes myself into robbing a bank. <laughs> that sounds anyway. up in court, right? Helen, you're the lawyer. Um, I, I'm not Improv sure that's made a, me do it. N- I don't think it's a recognised defence. Mm-hmm. It would be a, something of a legal precedent if that were Ooh, to, to work. Precedent? Mm. Why not precedent? I just said it the way I said it. Okay. I don't know. That's that would be a fun thing, Your Honor. It was a bit, and the honor and the judge would just go, totally get it, yeah. totally get it, fully on board. Yes, yes, and and, <laughs> and I enjoyed I will it very much. Put you in prison anyway. <laughs> no, I would like to not go to prison, please. And he'd go, yes, and and then oh, maybe it's I a could... shame about that because you're going. <laughs> but maybe I could go to prison on a desert island, and he'd go, yes, and. And We're never picking you up. Yeah. yeah You'll stay there forever. That's a shame, isn't it? Anyway, should we get on with the podcast? Oh, wait, let's please. Let's do that. Uh, that's enough of the improv shenanigans. Right, so what we did is, uh, because I am uh, ill-prepared this week, um, <laughs> and because the theme is improv... Is it? I don't <sighs> think that should be the theme. <laughs> I, mean, I think the theme very much is improv. Uh, I asked, uh, we, d- we didn't have a question, right? So I've asked people to send in questions using the hashtag Emperor Podcast. So I'm going to look it up now, and you guys don't know what these questions are. So these, this is going to come straight at you. So say the first thing, oh God, I've just searched for Empire Oodcast. 
Empire is that podcast. A Doctor Who situation? <laughs> is, it, is it something to do with a, a strong musky smell? Ooh. What's it? What that was that mean? Perfume reference. Oud. Oud. O-U-D. Kind of perfume ingredient. I know things. Heady. All right, here we go. Here's a good one. I'm going to throw this one to you guys. This comes from Brenna at my belief in brief on Twitter. Uh, in honour of Emma Thompson being made a dame this week. Congratulations Oops. to yeah. Dame Emma. Uh, what is your favourite Dame Emma movie? Probably, mm, there's a tough one. Um, it's between Sense and Sensibility, obviously. Fantastic, fantastic uh, Jane Austen adaptation that she also wrote. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and won an Oscar for and won an Oscar for indeed. Um, Much Ado About Nothing, in which she is glorious, mm-hmm. and it's one of my favourite Shakespeare adaptations. Mm-hmm. Um, and Don't. of course, she is also the best thing, not by a short distance, but by a very long distance, about Love Actually. Oh, that scene. I was hoping you wouldn't say Love Actually, but she's no, great in it. She's incredible in it. Yeah. She is fantastic as the betrayed wife of Alan Rickman in that. Here's the thing about Emma Thompson, though. Sorry. Dame Emma Thompson. Correct. She is amazing in pretty much everything. Yeah. Even if the thing itself ain't that good. This is correct. I would say. And you've just proved a point by saying love, actually. Yeah, she's fantastic in that. Uh, ben, what do you got? Uh, I'm So my initial go-to would have been love, actually. Uh, the thing I'm stuck on that I can't stop thinking about, I saw her, I'm going to be wanky now, I saw her in uh, Sweeney Todd on stage. Oh, yes, I did too. Flipping amazing in that. Yeah. Um, as Miss, uh, no, what, the, the, the person with the pies, the pie the lady, lady. The pies, the pie, pie lady. lady, singy pie lady. Helen the Bottom Carter played. I know, film. I know her name, and I've just it's blanked like on it. Scoggins it, or something, isn't it? Muggins. Love it, love it, Mrs. Lovett's pies, Mrs. Lovett's pies, Mrs. Lovett's meat pies. Yeah, um, and she was amazing in that. And now I'm blanking on everything else because I can't stop thinking about Mrs. Lovett's meat pies. <laughs> yeah, um, that, was, that was an amazing... So they, they said it was going to be a sort of concert performance of the musical Sweeney Todd rather than mm-hmm. a, a staged musical. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so basically everybody comes out on stage dressed in their finery, uh, carrying a, a songbook and sort of marches up to little lecterns for their songbooks. And then during the course of the first song, they essentially tear every, tear the stage apart tear each other's clothes apart and do the rest of the of the show in rags and with bits and pieces that they then produce from around the set. It's amazing. Yeah, don't it's worry, amazing. it was still a no-but performance. Yeah. It was a it yes still kept and. Still a few, a few clothes on. Okay. Yeah, it wasn't indecent. All right. It wasn't like hair. Well, no. It was just <laughs> loads of butts. And, and hair. And hair. And yeah. Hair. Nobody, hair. nobody wants that. No. Do they? No. She's so good in Saving Mr. Banks, a film which I yes. had absolutely no expectations of. And her performance and Tom Hanks's performance, she plays P.L. Travers, the creator of Mary Poppins, who is desperate for Disney not to make her uh, kind of make a Mary Poppins film because she thinks they're going to ruin it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tom Hanks is the ultra charming uh, Walt Disney who kind of persuades her to let them make the film. And it's, I mean, I, apparently the. It's not the closest uh, to the truth of what actually happened in that situation. But she is amazingly kind of grouchy as P.L. Travers. She puts in a really, really enjoyably kind of kind of grouchy performance, but she's you understand where she's coming from, and it's all about the sort of uh, pain in her own life that f- made her create Mary Poppins and how mm-hmm. she's so protective of that. And it's a really complex and layered performance uh, that makes you laugh a lot as well. I think she's amazing in that film. Yeah. Amazing. We haven't even mentioned Remains of the Day, but we should re- mention Remains of the Day. <laughs> there you go. Howard's End. That was it. Oh, yeah. Good point. Yeah? Yeah. 
her uh, her kind of double bill of of, of English stately home tragic <laughs> romances in a way, wasn't it? Uh, I'm going to suggest two things. Do it. One, if you can find the episode of Cheers in which she co-starred, <laughs> guest starred, check it out. She's brilliant. She plays Nanny G, a children's entertainer. Uh, very, very. I guess the very, very height of her fame because there was a period in the, in the mid '90s around that whole remains the day dead again. Much Ado About Nothing period where she was hotter than hotter than hot and, and Hollywood was like, she's amazing, put her in everything and they did. And so she ended up in Jeers or Cheers rather and... Uh, <laughs> that was the... That was a... Yeah, that was a less <laughs> successful spin-off. Yeah. Really mean spirit. nobody knows your name. <laughs> and, and they tell you you suck anyway. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and the guy comes in every day and it's, it's below norm. Anyway, um, improv guys, go with it. No. Go with the improv. Go, go where it takes you. And the other thing I'm going to recommend is The Tall Guy. Have I you seen you The Tall Guy? S- I knew you were going to say The Tall Guy. I've seen some tall guys, but I don't think I've seen The Tall Guy. You haven't seen The Tall Guy? I haven't guy. seen The Tall Guy. It's weird because The Tall Guy turns 30 years next year. So uh, it's a 30-year-old tall guy. It's a 30-year-old tall guy. If you don't know what The Tall Guy is, it's a romantic comedy that came out in 1989. It was directed by Mel Smith. It was his first film you know, of Smith & Jones fame. Written by Richie Curtis. It is, my memory of it is, it is hilarious. It is about an American actor, the tall guy of the title, played by Jeff Goldblum, at his Jeff Goldblumiest. Uh, I mean, he's oh. he's evolved since then. He is. Have you seen the? Have you seen his advert for the uh, his his new his new album? He's got an album coming out with his band, the Mildred Snitzer Orchestra. He's he's a jazz pianist in 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 L.A. So there's a jazz club in L.A. that if you go there. Most times when Jeff Goldblum is in town, he will play every Wednesday at this place uh, with his orchestra, the, the Mildred Snitzer Orchestra. And now he has an album coming out. And there's a TV ad where he literally just, he's at the piano and he goes, mm, I'm, I used to be Jeff Goldblum, the actor, and uh, mm, now I'm the musician. <laughs> and then he just looks at the camera and stares at it for about 15 seconds and it's the most perfect thing. <laughs> that is incredible. It is, that sounds so good. It is It is absolutely just Goblin compressed into mm. a little ball of Goblinosity. It's, it's amazing. So anyway, Jeff Goblin plays this, uh, this, uh, this character, this actor. He comes across to London. He works for uh, a British comedian called Ron Anderson, played by Rowan Atkinson. And Ron Anderson's an absolute shit. And so he's, the un- he's like the, the straight man in this kind of double act. And then things begin to go well for him when he lands the lead role in Elephant, the musical, which is based on the life of the Elephant Man. <laughs> and so there's a, there's two or three songs that you get to see from Elephant, uh, which are incredible and brilliant earworms. And he falls in love with a nurse, played by Emma Thompson. But she's amazing. She's fantastic and so funny and just relatable and, uh, and no-nonsense. The movie stands out because it has one of the great sex scenes. In movie history. So they go on their first date and because she's so pragmatic, she says, look, let's just not bother with all this faffing around. Let's get the sex out of the way first so we can then get on with the, the job of knowing each other. And then it turns into a really funny sex scene. It's quite slapstick where the two of them are, are uh, shagging around her house and knocking things over and on the piano and all sorts of shenanigans. It's brilliant. It's really, really good. And But I, I can't see it anywhere. I don't think it's on... It's not in any of the streaming services. It's not available to buy on um, iTunes. Yeah, so if you can find the tall guy, mm. 
definitely worth a look. Check it out. I mean, the combination of, of Emma Thompson and Jeff Goldblum is surely the most saleable of all saleable contents. People, people need to see that. It's so bizarre to me. Maybe they're holding it back because next year is the 30th anniversary. Mm-hmm. Who knows? Uh, and maybe it isn't as good as I remember, but I, I remember just watching it loads and loads and loads. And it's a film I still quote incessantly. I still sing song, I still sing lines from Elva the Musical all the time. So uh, it really is fantastic. Maybe, who knows, maybe next year we can get Richard Curtis and Emma Thompson in here to do a kind of El- uh, tall guy retro spoiler special. Who knows? Anyway... Uh, that's my that's my answer. Helen's answer was also acceptable. Thanks so much. How about <laughs> Ben's? Ben's answer was fine. It was good. There we go. Bit of a cheat, but it was good. I gave you a bit of a cheat and a proper answer as well. Yeah, did you though? Did I? Did you? Did I? I yes, so. and? Improv. It's great, isn't it? Uh, if you want to have your question read out in the Empire podcast, as my belief in brief did, uh, much to her satisfaction then you can get in touch with us via a number of methods. We're on Twitter as at Empire Magazine. Use the hashtag Empire Podcast. We're on Facebook as Empire Magazine. Oh, we should probably get a question from Facebook for next week. Mm. And we are, I say that every week, and <laughs> we never do. And we're on email as well, podcast at empireonline.com. Time now for our first guests this week. Chris Pine and David McKenzie have teamed up before to great effect on the big screen with Hell or High Water. That was a very American thriller. Now they're teaming up and going back to McKenzie's home turf, Scotland, for Outlaw King. It's out on Netflix and in cinemas this week. And in it, Chris Pine plays Robert the Bruce. And it is a historical epic to rival Braveheart. Helen went along to a undisclosed London hotel recently. I was also in the room. You were. I was. I was producing this one. Yeah, fine. So I'm not allowed to be near Chris Pine without a shackle. I think that's <laughs> obvious, Chris. I think that's Jeez. for the best. In case you know, butted him into submission. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so we had a lot of fun. An interesting chat. Nice yeah, guys. Yeah, very, very much so. There we go. Enjoy. Pine O'Hara McKenzie. All right, so welcome to the Empire Podcast. We're joined today by Chris Pine and David McKenzie. Thanks very much. Thanks for having um, us. So tell me this, first of all, why the Bruce? Uh, why, why a film about Robert the Bruce? I'll start. I, I mean, Robert the Bruce is a, a, a national hero. We hear about him when we're growing up, um, and, and no one's actually made a proper film about him yet, certainly not on a big scale. And, and it's, a, it's like almost an elephant in the room, you know, and, and uh, it, it you know, has been something that's been echoing around my head for a while. Um, and and then about six years ago, we we started to develop a project uh, based on him, uh, and and it's it's you know he's it's a big historical sweep. It's you know he's he's active for about thirty years of of, of doing various things on on both sides, and uh, and and uh, uh, we we sort of tried to work out how to distill it down, and uh, we got some way down down that line. Uh, I got distracted by doing Hell or High Water. And uh, uh, you know, in in the middle of the publicity on that one, uh, it was like, oh, let's get that project up and running again. And uh, and we we slipped a script to, uh, to Chris, and uh, and 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 he responded, and and uh, uh, you know, we evolved the script a bit in conversation, and and, and started condensing the historical time frame, uh, and and, uh, and and then Chris sort of bore the project, and and yeah, we made it. Yeah, I uh, <clears throat> firstly wanted to work with David again, and and. Then the pairing of David with a, a big budget um, action uh, adventure story wrapped around a very complex hero seemed fascinating. Uh, the creative freedom that uh, Netflix gave us was unparalleled, and that made it even yet more exciting. 
the conversation about Bruce himself began as a conversation about uh, a man of wealth and privilege um, becoming an outlaw. And what does that, what did that mean? And what did growing up that way in that time, uh, how comfortable was that man with all those trappings and to, 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 to burn his own house down, to sacrifice essentially, to lose three brothers, to lose his wife and his daughter for a time being, uh, for the sake of something bigger than himself seemed ever more interesting. And then even delving deeper into the history, into the historical record and talking to historians, then he became this kind of very interesting, opaque character where his motivations were not all that clear. And unlike someone like William Wallace, who at least according to the cinematic version, was very uh, morally monochrome and uh, fought against the baddies and then also happened to die very young without uniting the country. And then this guy who seemed like a real true strategist who at times seemed uh, from a kind of... Um, one could be judgmental and say, well, he, uh, um, you know, he aided the English. Well, maybe he did, but why did he do that? Was he strategizing? Was he Machiavellian? Was he biding his time for the appropriate, perfect time to strike, which seems like a more intelligent way of going about business than having a band of outlaws running through the forest? Yet the romanticized version of William Wallace, everybody loves, yet Bruce is, because he's harder to pin down, seems to me maybe the more, he seems a strikingly, more interesting, nuanced, complex psyche to deal with. And that, that I thought was fun. Yeah. Um, it, without getting into spoilers for anyone who hasn't read the history, there, there's a, there's some particular actions he takes in the film where he's, he's clearly co- sort of um, conscience stricken by them. And, and again, is that political or is it? Is well, it you have, the, here's well? another thing too. So like David wanted to be as historically accurate as possible. So certain things like, arranged marriages how how would one react to being betrothed to someone else well you're dealing with a time when people died at about 35 so the idea of being given away to someone it's it's just a part of life or the church and god these are people that believed in the hierarchy of the church believed in the god so deeply because they were going to see god very very soon because their lives were so so short so these division and to give an oath to someone. What is to give an oath to give one's word when in this film Robert says we have to break an oath? That's not like just words. That's like I have to break an oath to God. That's a big, deep, deep sense of moral. Um, you've crossed the moral line. So these are also things that we wanted to deal with, and, and it goes in so far as like when we get. Married, we we had a we had a medieval ritual expert who knew everything about what would the church look like when they got married. Well, they'd lie on a floor over a bed of straw, and or when they got married the night of the marriage, they are taken by the priest into the room to have sex. Well, that is true, and if we were to be even more historically accurate, the entire family would be in the room with the priest while they copulated to make sure that the woman would get pregnant. So this is a very, very different time of human beings, of human psyches, of how people dealt with ideas and concepts of God and religion and state and identity. So, you know. Yeah. No, I, I really enjoyed the, the weirdness of medieval marriage and, and yeah. the, the importance of family ties as well. It's, this is not just, you know, one man alone doing whatever he wants. He's, he's, got, he's got responsibilities. He's got a whole clan around him. 
Well, David, and he could probably talk more succinctly about this, but one of the biggest things that Bruce did, not only was it a time of international strife between England and Scotland, it was also internal strife. You have a lot of clans with different um, associations, different uh, family ties that, that wanted nothing to do with one another. So Bruce not only beat the English, he was able to unite the Scottish, which was a big deal. That's a very important part of, of of what he had to do. He had to he had to kind of win win over his own country and and particularly having made a great enemy with one of the major other families in the, uh, uh, in the country. Uh, it had to you know, bring bring those guys on side, and that wasn't always easy. And 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 you know he he was. Uh, 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 you know, often in violent struggle with those guys, and I think I think that the story of of, of uniting the country as well as 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 uh, reclaiming the kingdom and and beginning to drive out an occupation, uh, uh, they 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 have to go together. Yeah. Um, tell me about shooting in Scotland itself. Was that important for you, first of all, David? Well, it's an enormous. It's a, it's it's a Scottish subject. It, it's it's about the land. Uh, uh, to, you know, in in a lot of ways, uh, you know, he, he uses the land to his advantage militarily. You know, uh, it, it, it's a no brainer to want to shoot it in Scotland. Uh, it, it, it's a it's quite a big landscape epic movie in in, in all sorts of ways and. It was really important to me to be able to to to, to use um, uh, some of the, the the beautiful scenery of Scotland um, and and the castles and 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 the Glasgow Cathedral, which Robert actually was in. You know, so it, it's like th- those things were, were an essence of, of what we were trying to do with the movie, and uh, it was important to shoot uh, at a time of year where that that was we were able to take advantage of that, and we were able to shoot from late summer into in, into early winter, which is you know the cold sort of spectrum of you know strangulated autumn light and you know the breath condensing and and the rain and 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 you know, this lovely kind of sun low winter sun and all that uh, uh, and and obviously everyone else is getting really cold, but it, it's actually quite a stable <laughs> time of year um, to, to to get what you need and. Uh, it's my sixth Scottish film, and I've never been able to shoot that lovely autumn period. So it's the first time I've done that, and and uh, that was one of the reasons why we wanted to rush the film in uh, and uh, last year and get it get it into that weather window. Yeah, was it lovely to shoot in as an actor? Yeah, it was incredible. We uh, um, <clears throat> I made a shirt at the end of the film called the uh, Lion Rampant Tour. That's one of my favorite cruise shirts. I would I, I make cruise shirts Brilliant. at the end of every film. But anyway, on the back of it, just like you would do on a on a you know music tour thing, we listed all the locations. I forget how many locations, but it was somewhere in the neighborhood of fifty or forty wow. or something yeah. like that. So we went all over the country, yeah. and um, you know, oftentimes we drove up to the the north for three or four hours by car and went through these insane valleys only to land then to travel one hour to the our base camp and from base camp you'd hitch a ride into two hours into the outback and run up some hill in full 40 pound armor with horses and swords and do it over and over again and nowhere to you know go to the bathroom and i mean it was like it was a it was an adventure for sure (laughs) um uh but it's it was getting a taste of what a little taste of what it might have been like, you know, back so, then. I mean, one of the interesting things of, of, of course, that, a lot of that landscape has really not changed for seven hundred years. So, it, so you get when 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 Robert's kind of you know going going rogue and in, in the landscape, you, you're you're sort of allowed to expand the movie because it, you, it that it is the you know, pretty much the real world that you, that he would have been in, and uh, that that was a, that was a really important part of it uh, to to be allow, allowed to. Um, have the 360 of uh, uh, of that landscape and uh, and just explore it without without worrying about period details, you know, because it's the same, you know. Yeah, 
I also think like Scotland's relatively underused still. Although I did see you went to Dune Castle, which is where which Monty is Python... over, overplayed, and it was I, I, it, we 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 used it, um, <laughs> and it is it is where Monty Python. Uh, yeah. uh, you know, I, I'm caught between I, between the shadows of uh, Braveheart and Monty Python, <laughs> the Holy Grail. It's hard to hard to win on that one. You know, uh, uh, but uh, um, hopefully hopefully you found a balance. You know. I, I just know that one because I've literally run around it with uh, coconut halves. I, I visited with a bunch of American okay. school kids. Okay, that's and funny. they literally. <laughs> have coconut house that at the gift shop that they will loan you. So all these all these kids are running around. Um, <laughs> but um, uh, I mean, you mentioned Braveheart. That that shadow sort of looms long over Scottish medieval stories. Um, were, were you worried about trying to, you know? Either distinguish yourself from that, or or just kind of. A yeah, I mean, it's, it, 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 sorry, I interrupted your no. question, but I think I guess we'll guess yeah. where it's going to go. Um, uh, it it uh, is a shadow to some extent. It's it's a film that's twenty years old. It's a film that's that's very kind of mythologized. Um, it feels to me like a quite simplified version of of events, and it seems that in a very Scottish way. It it, it sort of glorifies. Uh, um, the 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 righteous failure um, uh, 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 of of somebody and 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 there's something kind of you it, it that feels like an incomplete story in some ways and 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 the story of Robert has sort of slightly been in the past eclipsed by that and and so it, it was important to me to um, try and do a film that that was complex but but the the, the righted some of those wrongs to some extent and uh, you know and and I think Braveheart is is actually. In, in the curriculum for kids to to watch at school, and I, and 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 I, it would be nice to think of this film, you know, being in there and 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 uh, and, and the, to show people a more complex uh, reality of of that life. It's a very very different movie. It's I mean, cinematically, it's a very different movie. Uh, tonally, it's a very different movie. Uh, you know, uh, morally, it's a very different movie. So there there aren't they're, they're not they're not really in in, in in the same plane, but they do happen to occupy you know medieval Scotland. So I get and I I have to reconcile myself with the fact that, that that's always going to be the case. For a long time, it was the elephant in the room I wasn't talking about. As like, you know, that other film, you know, and I haven't seen it for a long time, and I don't even know how 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 it will compare, but. Uh, uh, I just have to recognise that that, that 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 we're we're in the Braveheart thing, but we are definitely we definitely did not make Braveheart too. Yeah. I'm not sure how to ask this, but I'm going to. There's there's a TV show on in the UK at the moment um, called Why Does Everyone Hate the English, and I feel like you know we're, we're maybe you know on the edges of that with this with this story. Why you know the English make great bad guys, right? I mean, it's not just me as a Northern Irish person. Um, it's an. I mean, I'm tr- I've tried really hard with this film to 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 to, to make make it as much about personalities as it is about nationalities, and 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 I don't want to fall into it, it in, into kind of English bashing or 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 or, or anything kind of jingoistic. I think I think that's a really immature version of uh, of whatever your political beliefs are. That, yeah. that 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 there's no space in my um, head for that kind of stuff. Um, you know, the fact of the matter is that 700 years ago, King Edward of, of England was a, a tyrannical leader who who tried to subsume uh, Scotland into 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 England, and uh, you know just you know took away the stone of destiny, you know, which was the, the traditional you know um, uh, coronation stone mm-hmm. of the Scots and the crown jewels and all those kind of things, and just basically said, right, I'm not going to have a king of Scotland anymore. I'm gonna, I'm, I'm, I'm. It's just gonna be me, you know. And uh, uh, and people fought back, and 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 so that that's then. 
mm-hmm. and that that's that that's a justified uh, you know drive for for you know ridding ridding a country of an occupying force as a, you know but you know in medieval terms that's that's seven hundred years ago and I and I it's really important to me that we don't end up uh, you know making a, a a film that 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 that, that turns one you know nation against another mm. or anything like that it feels it feels that that sort of essentialist idea feels wrong to me you know uh, uh, you know we're all human beings I, I, i'm a i'm a cosmopolitan and <laughs> uh, and uh I, I, I i'm extremely keen that that i mean that the, the film doesn't get a jingoistic kind of thing to it and we mm. you know, we try you know the, the the story again without wishing to spoil the film you know the mm. There are elements of mercy in the film. One of the one of the great lines in the film that Elizabeth said is, "Compassion is not weakness." Mm-hmm. And 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 I think there's an element that we want to kind of bring that in, into the into the fore in front of uh, you know all this you know major you know violent medieval warfare, which is what happened. Mm. Fair enough. Um, and what, what have you got planned next? Have you have you started working on anything? I'm one of those guys that can't really sort of yeah. start thinking about something until I finish the last one. I'm yeah. still sort of like you know, uh, 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 <laughs> still kind of trying to uh, not quite you know put this out out the gate. But you know, in two weeks' time or whatever, it's released on uh, mm-hmm. you know in, in the theaters and uh, on Netflix. So. And 193 territories or something like wow. that. It's a massive reach, uh, which is pretty scary. So maybe when that's over, I'll start thinking about what's, what, what, what's happening next. Well, I do want to get back to the, you know, the, this Braveheart and Braveheart 2 mm. kind of thing. I think one is hagiography and one is like the motive of it is to raise someone into this kind of deification mm. sphere. And I don't, tonally and thematically, they're so different. The filmmaking styles are so different. I think David seeks to understand the moment and the time and the human and leave it for you to judge who this man is or was um, and what his motives were and what kind of moral judgment you want to place on anything. I yeah. think it is a, for me, and I we differ, David and I, sometimes on this, but for me it's really a meditation on the human's desire and will to power, mm-hmm. the will to dominate, the will to hierarchy, the will to violence, these are all things that the human, the Homo sapien has done for millennia. It seems like we'll be doing for many years to come. And there's not a judgment about it. It's just who we are genetically. So for me, it was always we sacrifice and do many, many, many horrific things to one another for the sake of things called nations, the thing called state, the thing called our land, the thing called patriotism, all of these things. Are they good? Are they bad? I don't know. But we do it a lot. And to me, it was David takes all of the kind of Hollywood tropes and sucks them all out, spins it on its head and throws it back into a system, into a film that by all intents and purposes could just be a sword and sandal epic about the moral hero. This is not that. So I always I leave the theater every time going, God, that ten that that insane action sequence in the end, people just getting slaughtered. And it's like he's lost brothers, he's lost his wife and daughter, he's lost his home, his father, for power, for freedom, for, I don't know. To me, those are the interesting questions. Mm. Was it was it all worth it in the end? Yeah, yeah I don't, yeah, and it, I mean, many people say yes, some people say no, I don't know. But these are questions as the human beings, we should be like, let's talk about this. <laughs> let's talk about these things. Quite right. Well, that seems like a good note to end on. Thank you, Thank Chris. You. Thank you, David. Thank and you uh, yeah, best of luck. Ask him about getting his willy out. I did not. Cool. Did you chicken out? I genuinely was like, he's been asked a million times today and I'm sure he has something shit to say about it, so I'm just not going to bother.
I still would have asked. <laughs> <laughs> Probably wouldn't have. I would have chickened. How would you? How would you have brought it up? <laughs> so to speak. Um, <laughs> opening question, straight into it. Yeah. So tell me about so, your willy. We've all seen Chris's pine. Oh. And then, and then I get escorted out of the room. And so pine got wood. You could do that. You could do that. No. Lots of no. winking. Lots, of, lots of winking. So let's tackle the big question of the day, Chris. So, um, so this is a movie in which, to give some context, uh, as we discussed in our live podcast a few weeks ago, Chris Pine gets uh, little Chris out uh, for for how long? I mean, a brief a, second. A brief second, says Helen, consulting her scrapbook. Uh, Fourteen point six seconds. <laughs> you don't tend to disrobe for a movie unless you got something to back it up with. <coughs> Fast bender. <coughs> the tripod. <laughs> oh yeah, weirdly, little big Liam has never has never, you know, it's popped only been out heard of in screen. rumor in myth and legend. <laughs> it's furtive. The tales have been told. <laughs> it only comes out in the winter. <laughs> Forages for nuts. <laughs> Why would it? <laughs> it is timid and easily startled. It may retreat back into the Neeson cave. But why would it need that? <laughs> to for sustenance, obviously. Anyway, that was Chris Pine and David McKenzie. Let's talk about movie news. Let's talk about movie news. Enough yeah. talk about uh, Chris Pine's Johnson. Let's get on with the uh, the important stuff. What has been happening in the world of movie news this week? Helen O'Hara. Um, I don't know where to start. Shall I start with the Colour Purple musical? Because that's where I want to start. Why so, yes. don't you do that? I will. So the Colour Purple, as we all know, is uh, originally a book. It became a film thanks to Steven Spielberg in, what, 85, 86? 85. Um, 85. And um, was nominated for lots of Oscars and didn't win any of them, which is still a travesty. But anyway, um, starred uh, Whippy Goldberg, Oprah Winfrey in her very first screen role, Danny Glover, great great film then years later it became a broadway show a musical which is not an obvious combo of material mm-hmm. and form mm-hmm. but it it's a brilliant show i mean I, th- I think it was originally made in 2003 but it wasn't really until the, the revival that came it started here in london at the Minera chocolate factory in 2013 i saw it it's unbelievable. Um, The leading lady from that went on to Broadway where she won a Tony, an Emmy and a Grammy for her performance um, as Celie and that is of course Cynthia Erivo who's in cinemas this week in Widows Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, and so it's it's suddenly become you know a a massive hit uh, basically thanks to that production and so they're now bringing it back to the big screen this time in its musical form and I have to say I am 100% 100% on board for this, pretty much only if Cynthia Revo reprises the role of Celie, because I think she is extraordinary <laughs> in it. I mean, presumably somebody's talking to her about this yeah, already. right. I would hope. You would think. Because um, here's what's so good about what she does. So if you, if you know the story, it's basically this, um, this young girl and her sister are horrendously abused by their father. Uh, Celie is then married off to a much older man who continues the abuse. And she just lives an incredibly hard life, but she starts to fight back. She starts to find her own way. She starts to find her own voice and her own strength, um, falls in love with another woman and basically 
builds herself up from really nothing and it's an incredibly inspiring and empowering story and Cynthia did that all through her voice she kind of told that story with her voice so at the beginning she's singing songs and it's very pleasant and it's lovely but she's got this tiny little girl voice and by the end she is full Beyonce like it is unbelievable transformation and and it tells the story just through the quality of her voice, never mind the lyrics and the music itself, which is also wonderful. So yeah. honestly, it's it's a phenomenal, phenomenal performance. I can't recommend it highly enough and I hope that it comes to the screen so everybody gets to see it. I mean, anyone who saw her in um, Bad Times at the El Royale uh, yeah. a couple of weeks ago, like she she sings live in that and her voice is absolutely incredible. Yeah. Um, so it'd be, yeah, it would, it would make sense, especially at this point in her career where she's established herself as a screen actress as well to, to then kind of return to that project and it seems like um, Spielberg is still producing this is he not? Yeah I, I believe mm-hmm. so so uh, so fingers yeah. crossed for it we're uh, yeah. excited. Along with Quincy Jones and Oprah Winfrey and uh, a Broadway big shot whose name I've completely forgotten but thankfully I've written it down somewhere uh, bear with me talk much Scott Here Sanders Scott Sanders so very excited about that uh, we wish everyone all the best Amen um, Can we and we may have to do a little mini spoiler ring fencing type situation here because I think we need to talk about what just happened in The Walking Dead mm-hmm. and what The Walking Dead has announced for its future because it's yeah. fairly seismic. Mm-hmm. Okay, so if you don't want to know the fate of Andrew Lincoln's Rick Grimes in The Walking Dead, I would skip. I'll try and put a more precise time code onto the blurb that accompanies this week's episode, but I would skip the next three to four minutes, okay? Because we're going to try and talk this, talk about this as quickly as we can. Yeah. Okay, ready? Ring fence going up right now. Okay, so Rick Grimes, they dropped his departure from the show into episode five, out of the blue, although there, you know, there was a little bit of build-up as it became obvious last week that it was going to be his last episode, most people, the world and his wife, thought that they were going to kill him off uh, because last week's episode finished with him stuck on a piece of with a piece of spike going through his chest and loads of zombies around him. And in fact, that's the way it looked for most of the episode. It looked like they were going to kill Rick Grimes, the hero of The Walking Dead, after after nine seasons. That is not what's happened. No. What's happened is he is still alive. He has been blown up in an explosion, blown to safety, where he has been taken by another character who is involved in human trafficking and he is now going to show up starting next year in three special Walking Dead movies that will further continue the story of Andrew Lincoln's Rick Grimes on the small but possibly also the big screen as well. And this is the first part of a an aggressive expansion of the Walking Dead universe. This is what really interests me. That the uh, the guy who runs the Walking Dead universe, Scott Gimple, who was a showrunner in the Walking Dead, has moved up. Is talking about other spin-offs and maybe other TV movies and all sorts of stuff in which characters can go from different show to different show and we'll have prequels and all sorts of stuff. So they're really, really going for it. I find this fascinating. A, that they're doing this at a time when you would probably argue that The Walking Dead is losing a lot of viewers and some cultural relevance. Why wait until now to do this? And what do you think about that? I've seen a lot, I've seen some people react with consternation and even anger to what they see as another sort of bait and switch by The Walking Dead. Well, yeah, I mean, I think everybody who heard he was leaving assumed he was dying because that's the way of The Walking Dead, isn't it? Um, Yeah. 
And so it, it felt a bit of a... It did feel a bit of a cheat to have him continue on, in also in quite such a melodramatic fashion, I think. It, it feels... I mean, even by the standards of the show, it feels a little bit OTT, doesn't it? It was virtually a, a Goodbye Rick episode, wasn't it? It was, a, yeah. it was a farewell tribute. It was like an audience with Rick Grimes <laughs> kind of thing. You almost imagine Take That would have come on at the end and done a duet with him. Never forget. Definitely. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it, it, it's it's odd. I uh, I think I'm one of a lot of people who has kind of given, given up, up on it. I'd, yeah. I'd read about this episode rather than watching it first time because okay. I was just a bit meh. I mean, I, sure. I, I'm the same, but I think it's quite a, a savvy move in a way that um, it, it will become a new re-entry point for people like me who have not seen the last couple of seasons and you go, oh, okay, it's Rick Grimes, you know Rick Grimes, you know what he's about, but he's in a different place with different characters, you it doesn't really matter what's gone before. Um, the, these TV movies, I think, will probably get increased viewership because it's him leading it and because it'll be a point for people who have maybe stopped watching The, the Walking Dead over the last couple of seasons, which is a significant number of people. I mean, it, it couldn't maintain its momentum forever, but the, the viewing numbers for a while were absolutely insane, especially yeah. for a cable show. Mm-hmm. Um, so, it's, I mean, it's dropped significantly. It's still doing like very well as a TV show. Yeah. Um, but I think it's quite a, an interesting move to, yeah, get people interested again in The Walking Dead. And it feels like a lot of the stuff that they've done um, over the last kind of series and a half has been to try and get people back involved, to bring in new storylines, to change things up. And I guess, it I mean, it stays true to the world of the show that um, by the sounds of it, there's a, there's a, a time leap forward as well. So after Rick's the show, yeah. uh, departure yeah. now, it's kind of six years ahead. He is not coming back by the sounds of it, um, that now the, the slate is clear for them to do however much with Rick yeah. that they want to do. But it, it is interesting, again, if you just jump back in, we're still talking walking dead, skip ahead, two more minutes. So it is interesting, because of the time jump, it raises questions of, is he done with the show? Because Rick Grimes is the sort of guy who would not leave, he would not give up without trying mm-hmm. to get back to yeah. his daughter. So will there be a situation where after these three films are over, Rick Grimes is still alive and comes back into the show for maybe the ending of The Walking Dead Mothership show. That would yeah, make sense to that'd me. That would be my guess. Mm-hmm. And then we can move on and do Fear the Walking Dead and Fear Yet More Walking Dead and oh, oh it's more yet another Walking Dead <laughs> and then Walking Dead the musical. And that can all take place and then it's just it puts a bow on it. And if I'm honest, that's what I liked about this week, this week's development, because I think I've said this in the podcast before, I would have felt a sadness had they killed him off, because I think that's the easy thing to do. And I think it would have been the dispiriting thing to do in this universe, in, in this series, which is so unrelentingly, unremittingly bleak for the, this character that you've been invested in for nine seasons to suddenly just cark it halfway through. Um, I, I felt that, you know, this is a bolder, braver perhaps more cynical storytelling choice. But one of the reasons I wanted to talk about it as well is that AMC, as I said, seem to be getting quite aggressive with plans for the expansion of what is still their biggest show. And this week also came news. These are still rumours at this point, but it does seem like this is something that's going to be happening. That Vince Gilligan, the creator of Breaking Bad, is about to start shooting a two-hour Breaking Bad movie that is going under the working title of Greenbrier and it'll start shooting sometime this month in and around Albuquerque and this hasn't been officially announced but this was this news was ferreted out this week by those people over at Collider 
And they say that there's been whispers in the industry for some time that Vince Gilligan is working on something Breaking Bad related. And it's another two-hour TV movie. So they seem to be getting aggressive about not just Walking Dead, but about their big properties. Breaking Bad, Better Call Saul, which is brilliant if you haven't watched it. And this two-hour movie, whatever it is, and however it fits into the Breaking Bad, Better Call Saul universe, whether it'll have Walter White involved or not, I don't know, but that I find that fascinating. Yeah, I mean, so a, a bit of extra news on that that's been kind of ferreted out, uh, again, through kind of various means. Uh, and skip ahead if you've not seen the end of, of Breaking Bad, if you've somehow <laughs> not I, seen it. Um, maybe out of the bag yeah. by now. Uh, but it sounds like it's going to be following Jesse in the aftermath of the finale, which um, if, if you've seen it, you'll know, obviously, uh, Walter White dies in a final Wait a standoff. Second. And Jesse uh, gets away having been held captive by the horrible neo-Nazi characters. And he he's driving away at the end, but it is not a triumphant ending for him at all. He has tears streaming down his face. He has been hopelessly traumatised by everything he's been through over the last few years. Um, so I think it's uh, that is quite an unresolved character thread for him that there is no closure over, over like where's Jesse going to go mm. what's he going to do this, how is he mentally going to survive after all the horrible shit that's happened to him yeah this is all being uh, extrapolated isn't it from the the story in the Albuquerque journal which says that it's, it will concern the escape of a kidnapped man and his quest for freedom is that right mm. so people are thinking that's Jesse because he's the one who seems to match that description oh i am so there yeah. for that <laughs> i am absolutely buying out for that because Vince Gilligan has actually you know he is a co-creator of better call Saul but he took a back seat uh, this season, so Peter Gould is now the showrunner in that. And it's, it's brilliant because if you listen to the Better Call Saul Insider podcast, Vince Gilligan and Peter Gould are, the guests, are two of the main guests on, on there every week, and they have other guests as well. And Vince Gilligan, like, every week, he's just going, I love this episode. I don't know what you guys did there. How did you do that? Like, it's like Clearly, he wasn't really involved with the creative right. stuff. Um, but maybe now we know why, because he's been off doing this. Mm. This is, yeah, I think hugely, hugely exciting and hopefully we'll get official confirmation of this at some point. And that's not the only major TV show with a film TV, like made for TV film in the works at the moment because finally the Deadwood movie is shooting uh, as of this week for HBO, um, which is is fascinating that they've managed to get the set back together for a movie when it seems like part of the initial reason for its cancellation was the huge production cost involved in basically... Building the town, uh, the town of Deadwood. Uh, if you've never seen the show, uh, it's a sort of gritty HBO Western series about basically a small camp that slowly over the course of three series becomes a bigger and bigger sort of little village into a town and the sort of uh, the creation of America and the start of um, of all these kind of rules and society and civilization in this small town uh, that was kind of cut down in its third season. And there's been talk for a long time of a potential continuation of some kind. Uh, and yeah, David Milch, the creator, uh, the creator has uh, written and is now shooting a film that seems to involve pretty much all of the uh, original cast. Obviously, sadly, uh, Powers Booth uh, died last year or the year before. Mm-hmm. Um, so his character obviously won't be back. But pretty much everyone else uh, seems to be in the picture for this. And yeah, we don't know a huge amount else about it for now. But that is a long wished for project that um, has finally come properly to fruition this week. And it, yeah, it just seems to be a, a big week for made for TV film continuations of beloved TV shows. Yeah. 
Do you think these will be released on the big screen? I'd love to see that. In the, I'd love to see this happen. Well, I wonder if everything that Netflix is doing right now, it literally in these next few weeks, have actually started to give some of their original uh, films at least limited theatrical runs, obviously uh, Buster Scruggs and Outlaw King uh, in certain chains or... They've just noticed that Mowgli London. will get that Mowgli as well. Mowgli is getting a, a cinematic release. Yeah. Um, that maybe someone like Netflix starting to blow those boundaries a bit more could be a driver of change that... And in fact, obviously, with, with Breaking Bad effectively being a Netflix property over here, um, who knows whether that could be brought to the screen that way. But yeah, I, I wonder if that sort of blurring of the boundaries could be something that then gets propagated more widely through through different kind of um, channels. It'll be interesting to see as well, uh, there's been kind of talk for a long time of when Game of Thrones ends, if the last episode would be something that would be shown in cinemas. Obviously the scope of it is going to be huge. I'm sure there are huge amounts of people who would who would go, especially to IMAX or something, to go yeah. and see the final ever episode of Game of Thrones. Um, so it'd be interesting to see if that happens when that show ends next year, which again could be another kind of uh, driver or a message to the industry that for something that feels like an event that is a beloved uh, IP that, that people have an attachment to, that people will turn up to see it on the big screen rather than staying at home. Last point I'll make about that is that Game of Thrones, I don't think the effects would hold up for a movie, so they'd need to really increase the budget yeah, for that. Would, and yeah. I'm excited. Helen, you're excited. I can see it in your eyes. <laughs> oh, yes. What else you got for me, Helen? Um, uh, quick one. First of all, uh, Once Upon a Deadpool. Uh, Deadpool is apparently getting a PG rated, uh, or at least PG-13 in the States, uh, re-release with an additional Fred Savage wraparound to replace the bad language and violence. Um, uh, Fred Sav- Savage obviously riffing on his The Princess Bride wraparound. Uh, yes. Therefore, I am immediately in the bag for this. I give this five stars without even needing to see it. Uh, that is superb film referencing and I'm here for it. They've literally recreated his bedroom and put him back in the same uh, design of, of shirt. So, um, fantastic work. Deadpool, I applaud you. Even if you did kidnap him to do it. Yes. Um, uh, in, Savage. In, uh, but I do have some slightly more concerning news and, and now I would like to sigh the sigh of the reboot. <sighs> because... Shrek is apparently getting a reboot, so I I I I don't share the that sigh. I don't I, share the really, sigh. I just I, honestly, I was down the South Bank the other day, and I was walking past the Shrek attraction on the South Bank. But there hasn't been a, a Shrek film for a while, and I was yeah. walking past it, going, "I bet there are some kids who don't know what that is, and who I'm don't sure, want yeah. to go to it, and that it's got no cultural currency anymore." I was <laughs> literally thinking, "I bet they reboot this soon." I bet, and then three days later. So get the <laughs> fuck out of my head, Hollywood. Honestly, I might wear a tinfoil hat from, from now on, so they can't scan my brainwaves. I think this is this is fine. I'm happy mm-hmm. with this. It's Chris Miller Dandry, isn't it, doing this? And he's yeah. got a, you know, he's he's not Pixar, Illumination Entertainment. They're not Pixar by any stretch of the imagination. But safe pair of hands. You know what? I will allow it on one condition. Yes, it cannot cannot at any point be a story about Shrek just wanting to be alone and then realising the value (laughs) of family and other people. Because you know what every single Shrek movie so far has been, including the shorts? They've all been about Shrek wanting to be alone Mm -hmm. and then realising the value of family and other people. And I'm I'm so super past it that Mm -hmm. I don't want to know anymore. My other worry is that they've said it won't be a sort of normal sequel. He'd like to get the original voice cast back, but yes. he doesn't mm-hmm. want to make a straight sequel. Yes. And, and my worry there is, does that mean we're in prequel territory? Please say no. My Interquel? Sidequel? I don't know, but I'm worried. My theory on this, 
of something that is in its very early stages and is still only just being talked about is that um, with it being uh, Chris Miller-Dandry, who is, has been asked to come up with a new idea, a way to reinvigorate Shrek, is that they could keep exactly the same voice cast and change the animation style. Do it in a, either in an illumination way or just some other visual style, because I think the as much as it doesn't feel it to me, Shrek is quite an old property now, and um, the way that DreamWorks animates those characters, especially the human characters, like since Shrek, humans have not been animated in that way because they look kind of bulky and weird, and you get lots of these kind of stylized sort of Incredibles or Gru in yeah. uh, Despicable Me, where if you're going to do a human character, if it's in an animated world, you don't have to make them look realistic. You know that they're humans. Um, I just wonder if that would be a way of of offering some kind of continuation that you've got the voice cast, you've got the characters that you know, but a point of differentiation could be to to change that animation style in some way. Personally, I would like it to be some form of sequel that ignores Shrek the Third and Shrek Forever After in Hollywood's favourite new tradition now of making sequels that ignores the shit ones. <laughs> Just sweep those under the rug. Give us the <laughs> give us the Shrek three we deserve, please. Yeah, there is an all time great joke though in Shrek the Third. Which when John Cleese is dying, it's uh, it's an Elon get a death sequence mm-hmm. that out to Deadpool 2's Deadpool Two mm-hmm. before Deadpool Two was Deadpool Two, so he takes ages to die. The uh, the other idea I had, I was talking with my uh, friend Sam Summers, who is a pod listener and a, a doctor. He's got a PhD in animation, specialising cool. in DreamWorks films. He is Doctor DreamWorks. What we were? That's <laughs> a nonsense degree, isn't it? He is the Shrekspert. <laughs> on a on a on a plane, someone's dying. Is there a doctor on the plane? Yes, yes, yes I am a doctor of animation, <laughs> specialising in Shrek. I can't. I'll be honest with you. I can't save your husband, but I can discuss Shrek Forever After in great detail. Would, mm-hmm. would that would that help? Would anyone like? No, he's the guy. He's the guy. You need he's the for guy. That. Wow. Um, anyway, I feel like I can't take sole uh, kind of credit for this idea, but we were talking about uh, they should do. Shrek into the Shrekverse that is <laughs> basically into the Spider-Verse but you've got Ogre Shrek mm-hmm. Human Shrek, live action stage musical Shrek, original picture horse book Shrek, Shrek yep. horse Shrek every single Shrek comes together to do what? I don't know or yet. was it horse donkey? I forget uh, oh yeah the horse was a donkey <laughs> but then you had Human Shrek and yeah. Ogre Shrek and yeah there were many, oh and then all the like Shrek memes, all the meme Shreks uh-huh. In a Ralph Breaks the Internet style, uh-huh. I don't know, prolification of pop culture. Anyway. Sure. Okay. Well, <laughs> I guess I'm totally won over then and will now be really excited for this. Yeah. Helen, Helen's writing this up at her invisible typewriter right now. <laughs> Send it to Hollywood straight away. Uh, I'm going to say one final thing about that uh, Once Upon a Time and Deadpool thing. We don't know yet what sort of release is getting over here in the UK, but it, hopefully it will be getting a release. But it's a really nice thing that they've done. So they've teamed up with Fuck Cancer, the, uh, the uh, I was going to say anti-cancer charity, but I guess that's what they are. They're yep. down with cancer. They, cancer is a bad thing. Leave people alone, you absolute prick. And they every a dollar from every ticket sold for Once Upon a Time, Once Upon a Deadpool, once, whatever it's once called. Upon a Deadpool. Once Upon a Deadpool, thank you. One dollar will go to Fuck Cancer, which in light of the pg 13 of Deadpool, Two will rename itself Fudge Cancer for mm. the duration of the film's release. Okay, right. Time now for our final guest this week. Tim Blake Nelson was fantastic uh, working with the Coen brothers on Oh Brother Where Art Lau back in, oh wow, 1999, 2000? 
when did that movie come out? Anyway, it makes me feel old, but it's brilliant. Uh, and he's now working with them again on their Western anthology movie, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, in which he plays the title character. He came into London a couple of weeks ago and we sent along John Nugent to have a chat with him about the Coens and oh, so much more. I say that because John's editing this interview himself and I haven't heard it, so it could actually be just him doing fart noises for 15 minutes, but hopefully it's a little bit more in-depth than that. Enjoy. Uh, so we are delighted to welcome to the Empire Podcast, Tim Blake Nelson. How are you, sir? I'm having a wonderful morning. It's great to be sitting here in this fashionable hotel room. It is rather fashionable, isn't it? Yeah. It's, it's some lovely decor in here. <laughs> um, so uh, we're, we're here to talk about uh, the Ballad of Buster Scruggs. And you, of course, are Buster Scruggs, um, the, the, the cowboy that opens the film. Um, you're, you're only on screen for... 15 minutes or so 20 i think it 20, is 20 okay uh yeah that um the way the movie works is it's composed of six vignettes uh so it's the, the six different thematic vortices into which you <laughs> the audience gets to spin for a little while and then they're spun into the next one uh and i um yeah i'm in the one that that begins it all in a raucous, hopefully funny, and certainly violent way. Yes, I think that's a very good way of putting it. Uh, is this is this the the longest amount of work for the least amount of screen time ratio that you've ever had? That is absolutely true. I yeah. worked I worked for uh, almost six months, a little over five months, oh. every day uh, on this role right up until I started shooting. Um, I needed to learn to play the guitar well enough. I'd, I'd never played the guitar at all, so I need, needed not only to learn how to play it, but be able to play it so well that I could not only sing while playing, but ride a horse. <laughs> right. uh, so um, there's this adage that an actor is responsible for the history of any action. Right. So meaning that if you tie up laces on a boot and you've had those boots for 20 years, it needs to look like you've done it every day for 20 years. Yeah. And so I needed to learn how to play the guitar that well. Um, and then I do all these pistol tricks mm. in the film. Uh, and so I was working out literally with six guns, wow. which are heavy and cumbersome. Uh, and again, needed to learn how to spin those really well and pull the, tr uh, 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 cock them very quickly, et cetera, et cetera. And it sounds, um, like I'm complaining. I certainly am not. It's the kind of challenge I live for. So it was really fun. But what, what was the biggest challenge? Did the horse give you any trouble at all while you're trying to play? Just trying to, well, uh, when you ride Western, which is somewhat unfamiliar to, uh, to perhaps um, people in England, because of course uh, in England they ride English. Uh, right. uh, the horses are neck reined, okay. so you really do to steer the horse need at least one hand. Mm. Um, but I had both hands on the guitar, so I was steering the horse really with my legs, uh, and that was a chore. That was that was difficult. I'm an okay rider. I'm not great. Mm. 
but that was that was hard hitting the mark while playing the guitar and singing. But fun. I'm again. It's a, it was a great challenge. One of the privileges of acting is with each part you learn something new and this was especially true with Buster Scruggs have you kept up the guitar playing on a horse since the movie i mean is that just the guitar playing the guitar. uh and when i'm whenever i'm around a horse i try to ride yeah. uh but i don't think i'll be doing them together again <laughs> it's not a combination that lends itself right really um but i love buster scruggs the character he's such a sort of cheerful and chipper person and also as you say pretty pretty handy with a gun um, I mean, were you almost disappointed that his story is only sort of 20 minutes? Would you like to see more of him? Well, of course, I'd like to see more of him, except that I'm not sure the audience would. Uh, <laughs> that Joel and Ethan know when their characters should be on screen and when they should make room for others. And in this film, you have you have, if you count, there's there are two uh, two handers and then there's one that's a five hander. Mm -hmm. So five plus four is nine uh, plus four is th you have thirteen really significant roles in this movie, mm. uh, and I think they're all apportioned well. Yeah, uh, and mine is on screen nonstop for twenty minutes, and he does a lot, and he talks incessantly <laughs> shamelessly mercilessly yeah uh so i think that's quite enough i've been told though and it surprised me that people would want to see a whole movie with him I'm... yeah i i certainly would i mean it got a huge reaction i saw it at venice and uh the mm. reaction there was immense it got I mean, like three rounds of applause uh just in your segment so uh, well it does have one of the great on-screen killings yes ever. yeah yeah, I don't want to spoil anything, but it, it, it is pretty, pretty special. I um, pulled it off, uh, but it's all Joel and Ethan. Yeah. It's a, such a funny concept, the way this one guy gets killed. Yeah. And only they could have come up with it. Yeah. Are, you, are we talking about the same thing? Are we talking about the table? Yes. Yes, yeah. And as you say, he talks a lot in, in this fantastic uh, Western accent. You're, you're from Oklahoma originally, right? I'm so, from Oklahoma. So did the, the voice come to you fairly naturally? It did. It's it, what I'm doing is a little south of where I come from, okay. um, and I know that that certainly since there's such a panoply of of accents available to for one to hear on in mm. in Britain, uh, saying a little south, people understand that that's actually pretty significant. <laughs> that's like ten hours drive south, right? Or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, were you a fan of westerns growing up? Because I guess Oklahoma is kind of pretty much western. They were country, always right? on television. Yeah. Uh, when I was growing up, I'm 54. So uh, when I was uh, basically between the ages of five and 18, when I left for college, you really couldn't ever turn on the television without seeing a Western. And that's only at that time, uh, I guess the advent of cable came at the end of that. But mm. when I was up until I was about 12, that was really just four four channels. Yeah. And then specifically Roy Rogers, because I guess that's a, a big influence on Buster. There's Scruggs. Roy Rogers and Gene Autry, the yeah. the singing cowboy movie, yeah. uh, is very influential over this. Um, and what Joel and Ethan have done is they've written this character I got to play, uh, um, 
who really sets up this smiling, benign world and vernacular, and then suddenly it gets sideswiped by incredible violence. Yeah. It's, yeah, it sort of brings Roy Rogers and Sergio Leone in a, together in a way we never thought they could exactly. come together. Um, was, was there any spe- that you specifically watched in preparation at all? A lot. I d- watched everything I could. Yeah. So um, all the way to Destry Rides again because they they have a they have a a dance number on a bar yeah. that I did that's from that movie. So oh, right. it it took a lot of viewing which again is a fun part of the job yeah uh and this is your uh i think your second time working with the coen mm-hmm. brothers after a brother where art thou um and you so you've known each other for at least i guess 20 years do you have a bit of a shorthand with them now we do have a degree of a shorthand um although i think that they're so kind and so generous but also so articulate mm. and so eager to be understood once they've brought you into their orbit because they're very quiet. Yeah. Uh, that one really doesn't even need a shorthand, although I do have one now with them. Mm. Um, and we are very close friends. So it's not like I haven't seen them since we shot. Oh brother. I see, uh, I see Joel, almost constantly really? we used to be neighbors oh really so we would literally just call each other up at nine at night and say let's get together and, and oh, one right. of us would walk to the other's house um we're neighbors no longer because i had more and more children and had to move to more space yeah. uh so out of the fancy neighborhood um uh so i could t- trade location for more square footage. Yeah. Uh, but even still, um, he and I see each other at least twice a month um, right. and hang out. And uh, and then I also see Ethan whenever I can. Yeah. Oh, Brother Art, that was, you know, such a, such a beloved film now. It's, you know, it's, it's, it was such a phenomenon at the time and it's still talked about in those terms. What, what were your sort of memories of making that film? Because it's almost 20 years now. Well, I, I owe so much to George and John in addition mm. to Joel and Ethan. Um, I shouldn't have had that role at all. I was a complete unknown at the time. Uh, but that was strangely fortuitous because that's what they wanted. Mm. They didn't want to cast a movie star in my role because it was a peculiar reason, actually. They... they Imagine they'd do a lot of three shots widescreen and then they'd always do a single on George because mm. he was the lead with the two sidekicks. And they knew Totoro would be able to handle that. But they didn't want to put a star next to George who would also be expecting a close-up whenever George got one. I so they guess. wanted to find somebody who was never going to be bothered by his about the level of coverage he got yeah i uh, was just constant was simply going to be grateful to be on the screen at all um uh and who also didn't not that anyone could but overpower george or meet george with screen presence right. but just be a bit lesser uh <laughs> because he's the lead he's yeah. ulysses yeah. uh 
I don't know how Totoro got fit into that because I I, I think he has incredible screen presence. Yeah. Uh, but as an unknown, uh, I was kind of perfect, and and so they offered me the role, and I had a great time. And those guys, George and John, were incredibly generous with me and kind. And Totoro turned to me early on and he said, "Don't waste a moment of this." Mm. This is one of those passages in your career you'll never forget. Mm. But have experiences and have uh, allow yourself a level of joy, not just enjoyment, but joy, so that you will always remember this because it doesn't ever get this good. And then uh, just finally, we've got a couple of projects coming up that I'm really excited about. One is, um, uh, in very different ways, one is the Watchmen Mm -hmm. TV show. I think uh, are you still filming that is that still I'm just about to head to Atlanta actually next Wednesday Mm. to pick up on that again Uh, it's going to be a 10 episode season on HBO and it's it's based on the the uh, famous graphic novel Mm -hmm. novel uh, that Alan Moore famously anything but a graphic novel but I guess HBO owns the title Uh, and so Damon Lindelof, the the filmmaker who's doing this, uh, is is doing something that I think Alan Moore actually will appreciate, okay. uh, which is that he's treating the Watchmen novel as a history book, and he's imagining the world created by the Watchmen now. Right. And he's using that as a prism through which to examine a lot of issues currently um, on 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 the surface of American culture and politics. It's really interesting, yeah. and I'm excited to be a part of it. Yeah, we're very excited about that. Are you able to say who you're playing, or is that still? Um, I is he named? I think he's probably named. Uh, his character, my character's name is Looking Glass. Okay. Um, and, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a really interesting, intriguing character. I don't really completely understand him and that's intentional. Yeah. Damon Lindelof meets out, um, facts about your character as you go along. Uh, he's like Woody Allen in that way in terms of wanting to control what the actor knows. And I don't begrudge a director feeling that they need to work that way. It's it's interesting. I find yeah. it interesting. Um, so I'm learning as I go along uh, who this guy is and trying to to. It's almost like um, fresco painting. Yeah, the clay is always wet. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, another project I'm very excited about in a very different way is uh, Angel Has Fallen. When oh, you're, that's funny. You're playing great. Uh, yeah. the vice president. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. In the, um, the, the Gerard Butler franchise right. about uh, the Secret Service agent protecting the president. Yeah. Yes. I play the vice president to Morgan Freeman's president. Wow. And uh, I got to shoot that here yeah. uh, in London. Um, and... Uh, yeah, I um I'm glad you brought that up uh because it couldn't be more different in right. terms of its ambitions than than Buster Scruggs or to a degree the Watchmen mm. uh which are 
more in the high art end <laughs> yeah. of, of uh, the spectrum. Uh, whereas Angel Has Fallen is a straight on, unapologetic, right. knows what it is genre movie. And uh, I love being a part of those uh, because the aesthetic is so clean and clear and you always know who you are, what's expected of you. And you're just working inside of um, these unsubtle iconographic gestures that the filmmaker is is up to. And it's it was really fun. Yeah. Really good character. Yeah. No, no, there's definitely a place for all of them, I think, in the in the world yeah, yeah we need to be entertained after exactly. all yeah um well i think that's all my time but tim thank you oh so pleasure much talking time. to you. I'm, thank I, you i i enjoyed it very much thanks okay so that was tim blake nelson we're beginning to the ballad of buster scruggs imminently but first it is time to review widows which is the big film that's out this week i would say uh, it is the return of steve mcqueen as a director his first film since 12 years a slave yeah wow taking his time taking a sweet time and this uh, this is an all-star cast and it's an adaptation of the Linda the Plant 1980s ITV miniseries about a group of wives whose bank robber husbands are killed pulling off a job and the, the wives are then find themselves doing their own job which yeah that yeah, seems fair they, ha- they pretty much have to they're, they have they're to. left in a situation where yeah. it seems like the best thing to do is to pull off one of their plans basically Liam Neeson's character Harry has left his plans behind and um, his widow Veronica who's played by Viola Davis who is the, the lead really of this ensemble um, decides that look the, the best way to get out of the hole that we're all in is to do this job he has left us these plans let us use them let us let us do this and the biggest you know um advantage they have is that nobody would suspect the butterfly uh, or in this case the widow so um that's basically that's basically the setup uh, th- things are complicated mm-hmm. um by the presence of a number of opposing factors there is an election going on um and the the two sort of main candidates are Colin Farrell's character Jack who is a uh, Jack Mulligan, heir yeah. Jack Mulligan is mm-hmm. heir to a, a political dynasty um uh-huh. taking over or aiming to take over from his dad played by Robert Duvall and uh against him is Brian Tyree Henry's um Jamal Manning mm-hmm. um and his gangster brother Jatem who's played by Daniel Kaluuya um so the the widow's risk essentially for various reasons being caught between these two forces um, in ways that will become clear when you see the film. And that's because Steve McQueen wanted to widen the story out. He didn't just want it to be a, tell a crime story. He did want to tell a story about underdogs, which he, he very much does. These, these women have the odds stacked against them. But they're also in a corrupt system and he wanted to sort of explain that system a little bit and look at the forces acting on this. So the police, mm-hmm. the, the politics of the, mm-hmm. the situation, the crime of the situation, how all these things interact and how they, they put pressure on the normal people caught in the middle. Um, and I think there are times when it's a little bit less subtle than maybe it, it, I would like it to be. I've seen it twice and it really smoothed out for me the second time and, and I felt like it. A few things jarred me the first time, but I think uh, when I went back and gave it another look, it really kind of smoothed into place for me and, and really came together. Mm. So it probably went up from its already high rating, actually, on a second viewing. But fantastic performances, as you'd expect from the cast. We haven't even mentioned the other widows who are Elizabeth Tabicki, Michelle Rodriguez, and uh, Cynthia Erivo, uh, again. Mm-hmm. Um, and Although just, Cynthia Erivo's not a, not a widow. She's not technically, technically but she's yeah. one of the gang. If, if we're calling the gang the widows, she's one yeah. of the gang. Um, she actually is uh, uh, Linda, who's Michelle Rodriguez's character's babysitter. I think uh, what we should probably say is that this is not a thriller. 
At least I didn't think it was a thriller. I thought this movie was terrific, but I didn't think it was a thriller. I think it's a it's a a drama with the odd action element. I I thought this was fantastic, and I think it's as much a study of of grief and mm-hmm. redoubtability as it, as it was anything else. And of course, the corruption in in the system, which is, seems so timely. There's a there's a shot in this that may be my favorite shot of the year, and it took me by surprise completely. And I won't say what it is. I want people to discover it for themselves because you may have the same reaction I had, which is, "What the hell is this shot? What what's he doing? What is this shot? Oh, that's brilliant. Yeah. Oh, that's quite brilliant. Uh, it's fantastic." And uh, yeah, he's pretty good. We'll see McQueen. He really is, and Sean Bobbitt, his DOP as well. Yes, fantastic work. Hans Zimmer on the score. I mean, this is a this is a top top level team yeah. behind the scenes here. Yeah, Gillian Flynn also co wrote the script with yes. him. So it it really couldn't come with a with a higher pedigree, and and that sort of shows on screen yeah. for me. Did but, I mention I was on set? I probably didn't, <laughs> but I was on set. It was awesome. Uh, but it's, it, when I say it's not a thriller, it's not a caper. So I think no, if anyone goes yeah. into this expecting oceans. 14 or Ocean's 9 or whatever. It's not that. This is a much more serious film, although there are moments of humour. The performances aren't brilliant. I think the two standouts for me, Fiona Davis is fantastic, you know, that that goes without saying. But yeah. the standouts for me were Elizabeth Debicki and Daniel Kaluuya, who I think have a real shout at if you were to go do a list of the best actors in the world under 30 right now, those two would be very, very close to the top of the list. Fair. They are fan. Fantastic. Daniel Kaluuya in this movie is terrifying. <laughs> no. He's a shit. Uh, so it's great. And Colin Farrell's eyebrows deserve their own billion as well. They are getting, I mean, did he, did he Colin Farrell, man. augment them with CG? I don't know what happened to him, but somewhere along the way he went from being, oh yeah, it's Colin Farrell, to holy shit, this is a Colin Farrell movie? we got to go see it. <laughs> when did he go from he I've went always from liked that. Colin Farrell I, I always like Colin Farrell apart from that one film The Winter or something that was terrible but generally speaking Colin Farrell it being in a film nowadays is, is a sign that it's a, really good A New York Winter's Tale A New York Winter's yeah, Tale yeah, that was see why he took it you know, oh, Sure it's, but it's terrible um, but generally speaking if Colin Farrell makes a film you should go see that film Anyway, anyway. Widows, Widows is fantastic uh, so we gave this one star. No. no, we didn't. No, we didn't. We gave this four stars. Four stars in for Steve McQueen's Widows. Go check it out. Uh, and next, as promised, we will discuss The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, which is the latest Western from the Coen Brothers, but it's it's a Western anthology. So it's a it's the latest six Westerns from the Coen Brothers, really. And uh, Ben, what did we make of this? Yeah, it's a uh, veritable six-shooter of short Western tales, starting with the Ballad of Buster Scruggs itself, uh, starring Tim Blake Nelson. Uh, the next one has James Franco in as a uh, as a bank robber. Uh, you've got one with Liam Neeson, who is travelling the country in hard times. What a week for Big Liam. Big Liam, him. And he's uh, joined by Dudley Dursley from the Harry Potter films, uh, a.k.a. Harry Melling. Uh, it's those two on the, on the like shittest <laughs> road that. trip of all time. Uh, you've got one about Tom Waits as a gold prospector who's out Tom panning Waits. for gold in them there hills. Uh, you've got Zoe Kazan in The Gal Who Got Rattled. She is the gal who got rattled in that story. Uh, and then it finishes up with a kind of spooky stagecoach story called The Mortal Remains. The thing that's really good about this is there are so many different kind of uh, textures to Coen Brothers films even within their westerns you've got the kind of unremitting bleakness of something like No Country for Old Men you've got the kind of uh, sepia toned uh, warmth of something like Oh Brother Where Art Thou Uh, then you've got the kind of real relationship stuff of of true grit that is against this kind of harsh background but there is a lot of warmth there and the thing that this does is 
from uh, kind of segment to segment, it changes tone and setting and characters entirely. It changes the way it's shot. It changes the the style of the story itself. Really changes from um, yeah from piece to piece. So you'd never quite know what you're going to get next. In that sense, I think uh, however well you react to it will be whether you're a massive Coen Brothers fan and which of their films, if you're not, if you're not always a fan of their stuff, which ones you like. So for me personally, it was the first couple of stories that I enjoyed the best because they're quite lighthearted and um, they're always brutal. All of these stories, whether they're kind of uh, light in tone or not, they always have a really dark edge to them. But there's a few that are kind of particularly grim or quite heavy going. Mm -hmm. And there's been quite a lot of discussion in the office because quite a few of us have seen it. And I don't think anyone can quite decide. Everyone has a slightly different favourite one. And I think that's something that's going to really benefit the um, the Netflix release for this. Obviously, hopefully, if you really want to go and see this in the cinema, I hope you get the chance to, because with it being a Coen's film, it does look amazing. But I think that anthology style means that you can... I, I wouldn't recommend you fast-forward any of them, but if you're watching this at home, there there is so much stuff in there that you will enjoy, even if you don't enjoy all of them. Well, that's, yeah, that's the very nature of anthology yeah. movies, which I am a sucker for, specifically horror anthology stuff. Mm-hmm. I grew up watching the likes of, you know, the Amicus and companies like that that would, that would specifically just make horror anthology, just an utterly barmy one called The Uncanny, uh, which is uh, where Peter Cushing tries to tell Ray Milland that he's convinced that cats are evil and trying to take over the world and so he tells him three cat-related tales of dread. <laughs> it's terrible, <laughs> but brilliant. Check it out. Uh, so I'm, I haven't seen this yet, but I'm absolutely, I'm absolutely there for all things Cohen and all things anthology, a Cohen-thology, if you will. Uh, we gave this four stars. Four stars. Yeah, I, I, I think my only main complaint of it would be um, I, I would personally switch the order up a little bit because you go in with a few slightly higher energy um, stories and then you get a couple more, uh, like, more slowly paced, slightly languorous ones. And I think um, I would maybe have changed the order up a little bit uh, but on their own merit, they're all good stories and you will really, really like some of them, if not all of them. Fantastic. Yay. Sounds good to me. So four stars down for The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, which is getting a theatrical release this week before hitting Netflix, we believe, next week. And speaking of things that are available on Netflix and also theatrically, it is Outlaw King, Hell's Bells. Yeah, so this is the story of Robert the Bruce, um, who you remember from those couple of scenes in Braveheart. Angus McFadden. Angus McFadden, it was. And um, he is uh, another Scottish lord at the, the similar time under the reign of Edward I, Hammer of the Scots, uh, that he was. But in his telling, he's really only radicalised um, after the death of Braveheart after the death of William Wallace. So so we see him at the beginning of the film going to pledge his support again to Edward I, uh, essentially giving up arms, giving up rebellion uh, against the, the crown and accepting English rule in Scotland. Um, but after uh, Wallace's death, he decides, well, to hell with that. Let's go back to war and starts going around basically trying to gather the troops and, and find a way to, to fight the much stronger English forces and get them out of Scotland. So this is complicated a little bit initially by the fact that he has been married off to an English lady who's played by Florence Pugh, who mm-hmm. is great. Um, and, uh, and so he's trying to keep her safe, basically. And also, he's not sure if he can trust her because she is English and Uh-oh. they are essentially untrustworthy. Sorry, Ben, but they are, you know. Yeah, it's fine. Um, we, yeah. we take it. <laughs> well, you, you've got to own that. You've just got to... Oh, you, no, we, we, we've earned it. You English own a lot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
Sorry about that. So there's a whole Second there's English. a whole kind of weird there's a weird love story, Andy love story kind of going on between them at first, which I think is really nicely played. Uh, and then it's a question of you know um, can he can he win this war? Can he find the allies he needs to fight the English? And can he you know drive them out of Scotland? Um, if you know history, you may be able to figure out the answer to that one. I'll leave it up to you to look that up. <laughs> um, I'll be honest, we were promised something, uh, and you've probably heard it in the interview just now, we were promised something that's very much the anti-Braveheart, but Mm -hmm. I feel like that's anti the perception of Braveheart in everyone's head, but it's actually quite similar to Braveheart beat for beat on the screen, (laughs) I felt like. And I can absolutely see why they disagree, and I can absolutely see that there is stuff here that Braveheart doesn't doesn't do or doesn't do well. Certainly this doesn't have anybody pinning their faces blue and dressing in tartan at the same time, which, as we know, is one of the biggest anachronisms in movie totally, history. Totally realistic. It happens at football matches. Yeah, it does happen at football matches mm. now since Braveheart, Chris. Mm. But when it didn't happen is during the time of William Wallace. Like, neither of those things were things. What about when he went to a fun fair and there was a face painter there? Again, no funfairs, no face painters. So again, wouldn't be happening during the time of William Wallace. Even if they weren't fun, were there fairs? There were fairs, okay. yes, but they weren't fun. There you go. Anyway, Helen my point being, once again. I didn't concede anything. <laughs> my point is <laughs> that this feels a lot more bravehearty than I think they were maybe going for. And, and I think maybe that is inevitable. It feels a bit like a sequel. It feels like a slightly cooler sequel, but only slightly <laughs> cooler sequel to Braveheart. Um, it's a bit with a spider. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. There isn't a bit with the spider, which is great because that would have been on Rathlin. That would have been bringing in the Northern <laughs> Irish connection and we don't really get that, which is a shame. But a really good cast, fantastic battle scenes, lots of mm-hmm. mud and, and guts and gore and no glory whatsoever uh, and lots of hissing, hissable English people, which obviously is, a, is really fun for all that's the rest of us. That's right in Helen's wheelhouse. <laughs> four stars. Yes. Also, four stars for Outlaw King. What a week. What a week. Is Liam Neeson in this one, by the way? Does he just pop up? <laughs> no, but it feels like he is. There's a Rob Roy-ness about it, you know? So it feels like he's there in the background lurking. In the spirit of bracketing things together this week, we're going to tell you about two documentaries that are out this week and are well worth your time. And the first one also has a war theme, given mm-hmm. that it is about the First World War. And this is Peter Jackson's They Shall Not Grow Old, which as well as getting a theatrical release this weekend, which of course is, you know, Armistice Day is on Sunday, mm-hmm. uh, the 100th anniversary of the end of the Great War, as well as getting a theatrical release this week, it is showing on BBC Two, I believe, on Sunday at 9pm. So clear your calendars, check this out. It is fantastic. But Helen, unless you've already listened, of course, to our Peter Jackson interview special, which <laughs> is already up, Helen will fill you in. Yes, so this is... Um a documentary gathered from uh, footage uh, from the Great War, from World War One, and then um, uh, audio recordings from the 1960s with veterans of the war. Um, so basically, uh, Peter Jackson has woven them together and then with uh, extraordinary amounts of uh, technological know-how has actually turned the this grainy, black and white, jerky, you know, 1910s footage into colourised, realistic, sort of modern footage. Um, he's even 3 d it. If you can find it showing in 3D it will mm. actually play most of it in, in 3D in colour. And it just brings the whole thing a bit more to life and it brings uh, a new perspective basically on World War One. Uh, even if you think you know all about it, it's kind of interesting to hear a lot of this stuff. I find it quite shocking because one of the very first things that the, the veterans talk about in the film is the fact that they weren't traumatised by going to war, that they thought yeah. it was a wonderful experience, that yeah. they wouldn't change it for the world. And that's not... 
the image that any of us, I think, have of World War One. So it, maybe it's there as a deliberate counterbalance, but it's genuinely quite quite shocking to hear that. I think. And so you you see them, you know, training, being recruited, uh, forming up, and then marching off to war. And it's only then that the film goes into color and sort of widens out and takes in the whole battlefield, and you get to see, you know, the mud and the rats and the soldiers struggling through and they've done a bit of lip reading and, and sort of um, figured out what people were saying and put mm-hmm. in a little bit of realistic audio with the, you know, with the machine from the machine guns to the horses getting stuck in the mud to what people are saying. And it just gives you an idea of this being real people and not sort of at some remove, which I think black and white footage and, and that kind of jerkiness of that old footage can sometimes do. So really, really worth a look, even if you are not a war person particularly. I mm-hmm. think it's a fascinating document. Um, and yeah, 100 years ago this weekend, so yeah. it seems like it's the time. Fully agreed. Uh, I think this is a terrific piece of filmmaking. It's a, it's a fascinating cultural document as well. And uh, I wasn't just brown-nosing when I said to Peter Jackson I felt this was an important movie. I was partially brown-nosing, of course. <laughs> Obviously. But uh, this feels like an important movie to me because I feel like the Great War, the First World War, is rapidly, honestly, becoming the Forgotten War. Nobody is left alive from that. All the survivors are gone. And it feels like it's receding into the background. And movies like this and Journey's End keep it alive and keep uh, keep alive the idea, not just of the sacrifice that everybody went through, and generally the pointlessness of that war, but yeah. also the the fact that it was a horrible, horrible war. And what Jackson does, which is really interesting, I think, is that he blends it all together. So you have no idea where you are in terms of time, or location, and it all becomes one great big melange. And and it is, just to be clear, a very focused piece as well. Yes. It's on British soldiers in France. It's And, and I was surprised by Belgium. that. I honestly thought, sorry, in Belgium, yeah. I honestly thought there would be more um, uh, Anzac troops, uh, Gallipoli obviously yeah. being a, a, f- yeah. a huge, huge uh, part of uh, New Zealand history. Um, but uh, but that's what this is. It's yeah. uh, That's not this story. So um, mm. this is very fo- fo- focused on the British Tommy, which is interesting. So four stars then for They Shall Not Grow Old. Uh, check it out this weekend. And Helen is also going to recommend Won't You Be My Neighbour? Oh, which I w- is, yeah. I mean, this is about Mr. Rogers. And he's not a particularly British phenomenon, is not he, Mr. Rogers? No, I don't I don't know of him ever being on TV ever here. Maybe he was. Maybe other people had more channels than I did. Yeah. Um, but he was a, a an American children's TV presenter from about the late 60s to the 80s and ni- I think into the 90s even. Um, he actually came back for a little bit around the time of um, September 11th because he felt he, he should talk to kids about it and sort of explain what was happening. Um, and he was basically just a really good person. Um, he, he almost became a minister and then sort of ended up in TV instead, but he saw his TV work as a sort of a ministry and talking to kids, never talking down to kids, as a sort of a ministry. And um, and he's just a really good force in the world. And I think if you are despairing over certain people in the world in power right now, this is a really good film to see because it reminds you of what's out there and what's possible, I think. Mm. And it's and it's a really heartening film. I don't think anybody left the cinema where I saw it without a smile on their face. Um, it's a lovely, lovely documentary. It's just about him and his life. Um, it has his family and his friends talking about him um, it has footage from both his shows and sort of behind the scenes and mm-hmm. a little bit of home footage here and there. Um, and, and it just paints a, a pretty rounded picture of the man. It doesn't feel like hagiography. It doesn't feel like they're, you know, ignoring rough edges or, or 
you know, <laughs> covering stuff up. It doesn't sound like there were any to him. It really doesn't. Uh, and I mean, you know, ju- just to be clear how good a guy this is, Tom Hanks is playing him in the biopic, <laughs> right? So you know that he's a good guy. Um, and and, and this will give you a bit of a basis yeah. for that biopic when it comes out, I think, next year. Yeah, he's such a good guy that you wouldn't be surprised to find his first name is Steve. That's right. But it wasn't. It wasn't. No. But it should be. It should be. But yeah, it's lovely. It's a, it's a big warm hug of a film. Sounds fantastic. Morgan Neville directed it and we haven't put the Empire Review up yet so I'm not entirely sure what it's got. <laughs> but Helen gives it a big old... I would give it four stars. Easy. Four stars from Helen O'Hara. That's amazing. Just quick aside, the Tom Hanks thing is perfect because the first time I became aware of Mr. Rogers mm. was there's a brief snippet of him in the burbs. So... The morning ah, after Tom Hanks has had a horrible yes. dream, he's flicking through TV one day and there is Mr. Rogers going, won't you be my neighbour? And it's lovely, all full circle, is isn't lovely. it? Wow. It's nice. oh, he is the kind of name that you know just from American pop culture yes. without ever having seen him. So mm. it's, it's nice to now know what they're talking yeah. about. And nice to know how wholesome he is as well because his name conjures up all kinds of rudeness in my head. <laughs> I'm not touching that one with a barge pole. No but. That's a big old no but from Helen and Ben. <laughs> Shutting that shit right down. This week is, I don't remember a week like this for a long, long time where there's been so many big releases worthy of your time and attention. And one of them is a World War II Nazi zombie thriller called Overlord, Mm -hmm. which we thought was going to be a Cloverfield movie, but isn't. Yeah, it's not, but it still is produced by J.J. Abrams uh, and it's another situation like the last couple of Cloverfield films where it's a sort of young up-and-coming director who this time is Julius Avery. Uh, this is a uh, the story of a troop uh, in the run-up to D-Day. They're being flown behind enemy lines in France, in Nazi-occupied France, uh, to basically pull off their own little mission that if they don't succeed, D-Day doesn't go ahead. They need to um, destroy a radio-blocking tower. But... The uh, the plane is shot down in uh, midair. Uh, our lead is uh, Jovan Adipo as uh, Private Boyce, who uh, kind of escapes from the wreckage and meets up with a couple of the other uh, surviving members of the troop. And when they get to the French town uh, where they have to pull off this mission, they discover there is some kind of horrible Nazi experiment in the local church. Fantastic. Those pesky Nazis. Don't you hate when that happens? Yeah. Uh, How does this one deliver in terms of gore and action and spectacle and gore? So... I would say it starts off really well. The the kind of war scenes at the start are really, really well done. They're really intense and they feel kind of pulpy, but also you do feel the real kind of uh, gritty intensity of them. There's a little bit of a lull when they first arrive at the French village just to kind of get some of the plot gears going. Um, and there is a lot of gore. If you've seen the trailers, you know there's some pretty grisly images and stuff here. I have here. stayed away from the trailers. I don't yeah. want to know what happens going into this. I think that's wise if you haven't seen the trailers yet, but you're intrigued by this because... I feel like the trailers did show a little bit too much. It's it's a it's a fun B movie that I just wish was a little bit more fun and a little bit more B movie. Um, there's quite a lot of gore and kind of grisly stuff in it, but it keeps kind of um, in its final third. It keeps reaching towards these moments where you go, "Oh, here we go! It's about to go off! It's about to really kick into another gear." And every time it's about to do that, it just holds back a little bit in a way that I just wish it had kind of pushed the kind of craziness a bit more because it's so close okay three stars then for Overlord wow and that film sucks this week what yeah. <laughs> I know compared to everything else compared it's a to tough week else. for yeah, it yeah. is yeah it's a shame it is a shame 
three stars though it's a recommendation it's a recommendation, it's a recommendation. Yes. I think people you, you should go and say if you're intrigued yeah. by that if you and if you like uh, kind of gory horror stuff if you like crazy B-movies go and see it and you, you may get more out of it than me but I yeah I left with reservations uh, Helen, we also have Wildlife, which is a directorial debut. I told you it's a big week. Yeah. The directorial uh, debut of Paul Dano uh, with Jake Gyllenhaal, Kerry Mulligan, mm-hmm. and I'm guessing Liam Neeson makes an appearance at some point. <laughs> um, he he does, but he's standing behind a tall tree, so you can't see him. Uh, well. <laughs> I'm kidding, of course. Depends, no, this with, depends is... which angle you're looking. No, Chris, stop That's it. That's not a branch. Stop it, both of you. Uh, so this is uh, the story of a small family. It's set in the 1950s um, and it is um, a family that are kind of falling apart. So Jake Jill, uh, Gyllenhaal plays Jerry Brinson. He's the paterfamilias, uh, mm-hmm. if you will. And he keeps losing his job. He's a golf pro and he's been moving from place to place uh, in search of work and keeps not being able to keep it. Um, uh, and he's led, led out of work for this, uh, this partic- on this particular occasion and I think it sort of is the last straw a little bit for his wife Jeanette who's played by Carrie Mulligan mm-hmm. um, and he, especially when he can't find other work and it eventually takes work uh, firefighting up in the mountains above the town they're in a sort of Colorado town and there's wildfires in uh, in the mountains around them uh, so she basically decides look this guy isn't going anywhere I'm going to have to find uh, another life for myself I can't keep doing this I can't keep moving around um, she basically sort of reinvents herself as a party girl starts going out in search of a rich husband essentially um, and this might all be fine except that they have a teenage son who's played by Ed Oxenbold who's great in this film and he's kind of caught between them both and he's trying to keep both his parents happy and both of his parents on side and and try and figure out where he belongs in this whole mess and it's um it's just a really granular exact portrait of this kind of fractured family and uh, and what's happening to them through this this weird little season uh, as the father fights wildfires and the mother seems to be one Mm. um Really impressive work, I think, from Paul Dano, especially for a first time out. Um, he obviously wrote the screenplay as well with uh, Zoe Kazan, who he's mm-hmm. written with before. They're mm-hmm. a, a couple as well, they uh, based on a book. But it, but they've they've done, a, I think, a really good job the adaptation, and and it feels um, very specific to a time and place. Beautiful, beautiful cinematography. It looks like it looks gorgeous, um, and I think uh, yeah, it's definitely worth a look. I think Harry Mulligan's in with a really serious shot of an Oscar nomination. Um, Gyllenhaal probably doesn't have quite enough to work with to get his own, but he's very good as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and yeah, we'll I'll be interested to see more stuff from Paul Dano on this evidence. Book him, Dano. That's what they say. Interesting, you're saying Gyllenhaal. I, I believe that was what I was told was right. Is that not? I have always said Gyllenhaal. And we've had him on the podcast, and he didn't correct us. Ah, who knows? There was that. There was that video of how do you pronounce his name, and everyone had a different yeah. one. So maybe I picked up the wrong one from somewhere. You know, there's a point where you can correct people mm-hmm. about yeah. how your name should be pronounced. My sister let uh, her flatmates go the entire way through university, calling her Meve. Well, we know it's actually Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> So strange, so strange. Anyway, that's it from Bean in Holland. Um, Listen, guys, I only just did one class, okay? When I do another class, Mm -hmm. the improv is going to be two better than this, okay? Wow. That makes a whole two. Yeah, it's going to go all the way up to two. (laughs) I know, I know. Helen's pointed at her watch because you got a heart out. Yeah. Just while we finished, right? Um, Also out this week is a cringe. But Uh, we gave it something. We gave it uh, three. I haven't seen it yet, alas. I'd like to. Yeah, we haven't seen it yet, uh, but we gave it uh, three. 
Yeah, we didn't. People who saw it gave it three, just to be clear. People who saw it gave it three. Uh, I'm just verifying that because that may not be... Yes, yes, three stars. Three stars for The Grinch. So that's also out as well if you want to check that. And uh, if you want to have... You can watch all these movies in one go. That's going to be a 24-hour marathon. It's going to be great. So, oh, what do we give Wildlife? Four. Four. That's a ragged end to a podcast, isn't it? That's fun. Four stars then for Wildlife, three stars for The Grinch. And that is it for this week's Empire Podcast. Join us next week for more film-related fun. It's a Helen O'Hara interview special, by the way, next week, because not only is she talking to Outlaw King's Aaron Taylor-Johnson, she also has an audience with an actual (gasps) bona fide legend. I actually did. Jane Bloody Fonda is on the Empire Podcast. Following in the footsteps of her brother, Peter Fonda, uh, and I believe that special, Peter Fonda special, is still available. So this is from a few years ago, and it's a lot of fun if you want to go and check that out. The Brothers Assembly and Talking to Peter Fonda. Next week is Helen O'Hara talking to Jane Fonda. Two legends in one room. <laughs> one legend. And me one going, legend oh my God, I love you. And Jane Fonda in the same room. Amazing. What did you talk about? Don't tell me. Okay. Don't tell me. But do next week. That's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, Until then, until that auspicious occasion, until we meet again, it is goodbye from Ben Travis. Goodbye. It is goodbye from Helen O'Hara. Off to run a marathon, no doubt. I am actually at this weekend. Christ almighty, of course. And it's goodbye from me. I'm off to get a location. Yes, and? And a scenario from Helen and Ben. Go on, what is it? Anywhere but here, right now. Okay, and Ben? Eat tuna. Oh, God, they've screwed it up. All right, that's it. That's it. My improv career is over. Thanks so much for listening. See you next week. Bye.